How did an ad in the Wall Street Journal lead to the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls? And what does a fatal disease and a popular summer drink have in common? Answers to those and other questions coming up in this episode of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and get some perspective on life. Well, this sounds like a summer drink that's related to a deadly disease. It has some kind of uh, <laughs> overtones for this, this time we're living in, but tell me about it, Marsh. This popular summer drink, Winston Churchill, once called the drink that has saved more Englishmen's lives and minds than all the doctors in Europe. Really? A summer <laughs> drink? Is this like a gin and tonic or something like that? That's exactly what it is. Really? Yeah. Well, tell me about it. Tell me, tell me. Tell uh, me that it's medicinal. Well, that's <laughs> nice to know. <laughs> the ultimate boozy refresher drink, which uh, we just had the other day, the gin and tonic. It first became popular in 19th century India as a malaria cure. I had no idea. Quinine, a bitter herb that prevents the disease was part of the carbonated tonic water patented in 1858. And British colonists soon concocted the gin and tonic as a lovely way to take their daily medicine. (laughs) (laughs) Now leave it to the British. Oh, yeah. Well, we got to take this quinine water. Here's a way to take the quinine and and enjoy it. (laughs) No malaria and we're drunk. (laughs) And we're having a good time. That's fascinating. I had never heard that, that the gin and tonic had to do with a malaria cure. Who knew? (laughs) Let's hope there's something for COVID half as fun. Oh, my God. (laughs) I've got an interesting question, too. How did an ad in the Wall Street Journal lead to the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls? I wonder if... If our friend uh, Rob Fredrickson knows the answer to this. He's a pastor and a listener. Okay, do you know? Uh, I haven't a clue. Oh, well, this is interesting. Now, there were there were two sets of scrolls discovered in the caves in the Judean desert, and a member of the uh, desert Bedouin tribe was chasing a goat when he stumbled into the cave, and they found those scrolls hidden there in the, in the pottery jars. I think we know about that. He sold two of them, and they finally fell into the hands of an archaeological professor at Hebrew University in 1947. So he went back to the cave, and he found four more scrolls. He sold those to a different buyer a man who worked at the Monastery of St. Mark in Jerusalem. And in 1948, that man realized the scrolls he paid just 24 pounds for were priceless, authentic, biblical manuscripts. Wow. So what did he do? In 1954, he placed a blind ad in the Wall Street Journal, and he sold the four scrolls back to the Israeli government for $250,000. Gee, it's not bad for the... Dead Sea Scrolls, that's a deal. So anyway, that's how the Israeli government finally got the rest of the Dead Sea Scrolls, through an ad in the Wall Street Journal. Thank God it wasn't on eBay or something. These days it would have been. (laughs) (laughs) Scrolls, reused scrolls, would you like some used scrolls? Here's a picture, yeah. (laughs) Hey, I've got a question for you. Okay. You know, the normal human body temperature is 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. But your temperature has to rise to 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit to be considered a fever. Why the big difference? And why those precise numbers? I was just going to say, why are those 
numbers so, so precise. precise. I happen to know this answer, Bob. Oh, okay. Because in Celsius, they're even numbers. That's right. They're conversion numbers. Yes. You read the same thing I read. I did. Is Ask Maryland in Parade <laughs> Magazine. That's right. Ask Maryland. But I, I read went, it too. I went a little deeper than that okay. and found a little more interesting stuff behind it. But you're exactly right. The numbers suggest a precision that doesn't exist because the Fahrenheit numbers are conversion numbers from the Celsius scale. Uh-huh. That was invented in the 18th century by Anders Celsius, a centigrade temperature scale based on the number 100, which is very simple. I wish we'd adopted this, but we didn't. On the Celsius scale, zero is the freezing point of water. 100 is the, the boiling, boiling point of water. Simple, simple, simple. Everything else is in between. So on the Celsius scale, a human being's normal body temperature is 37 degrees. A fever starts at 38. But when you convert those numbers to Fahrenheit, 37 becomes 98.6, 38 becomes 100.4. Yeah, yeah. So the gap between these uh, these degrees is less than it seems. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting common sense answer to why it's so odd. And just so we can credit who came up with the Fahrenheit system, that was physicist Daniel Gabriel Fahrenheit. He did his before the Celsius scale, so his came out first, uh, but Celsius superseded it. And every country in the world except the U.S., the Bahamas, Belize, the Cayman Islands, and Liberia <laughs> use Fahrenheit. Well, Everybody else used Celsius. If they had done it like they talked about when we were kids, we would have no problem with it today. The metric system. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But and now I, you know. Now we're, we're doomed. We are doomed. <laughs> okay, here's something uh, fun. Okay. Who is the only person to appear on every version of The Tonight Show from Steve Allen to Jimmy Fallon? Really? As a guest. And Steve Allen, that started 1950 or something? So we're talking. I'm pretty sure. We're talking almost 70 years. (laughs) So who's been on every single Tonight Show? Can you give me any hint? Yes, I can. Okay. He's in the news this week, unfortunately. Oh, Carl Reiner. Yeah. Carl Reiner. Really, he was on every version of The Tonight Show from the beginning of television until the 21st century. Yeah. 98 years old. He died this week. God bless him. Well, I have an interesting question about a comedian. (laughs) (laughs) What famous comedian got his start acting with the Works Progress Administration during the Great Depression? What comedian? Repeat it. What famous American comedian got his start acting with the Works Progress Administration during the Great Depression, during FDR's time? So, God, this would have to go back to uh, somebody... I'll just cut to the chase. It's Carl Carl Reiner. Oh, no! Yes. Actually, it's interesting because after graduating from uh, high school, he was making $8 a week as a machinist. His older brother, Charlie, told him about a free dramatic workshop in Manhattan sponsored by the Works Progress Administration. So he went and took the course. I'll be darned. And he did plays in Central Park for a dollar a week. He did Shakespeare. He was in a summer theater in Rochester. And during World War II, this is another interesting thing. We know Carl Reiner wrote The Dick Van Dyke Show. He, yeah. he directed it. He yeah. wrote it. He wrote it like himself. I was a comedy writer. I worked in New York City. I lived in New Rochelle, New yeah. York, just yeah. like Dick Van Dyke. Yeah. Had two kids, had a wife. But another thing about Dick Van Dyke is just like Carl Reiner. Carl Reiner, during World War II, he was in the Air Force, but he also was in a comedy troupe, an acting troupe performed before soldiers, and he said that's where he became a comedian, was in World War II. I'll be darned. I thought that was fascinating. It is. That came from The Hollywood Reporter. Another thing in there was he said what was different about Dick Van Dyke was he and his wife were pretty much equals. 
it wasn't like I Love Lucy or a lot of the other shows where the yeah. the marriage was based on deception. Somebody's yeah. always trying to pull the wool over the eyes of the other person. Yeah, there was a little more, uh, more equality, equality there in that relationship for sure. I yeah. heard uh, uh, Mary Tyler Moore recently talking. She goes, I was watching all these TV shows and the wives were vacuuming the floor and they were in these little frilly dresses and everything. And she goes, I was wearing capri pants and jeans. And I asked, can I do that? That seems more real to me. And they said, sure. Mm-hmm. And that was a very different look. And you look at those shows today, they still look modern. They look like they're dressed today, not yeah. back in 1960. Yeah, but you didn't see him vacuuming, and that's the key, Bob. Oh, I, <laughs> I don't think that's important at all. Yeah, of course. All right, all right. Well, let's. Yes, you're right. <laughs> there was no equality there. All okay, right. <laughs> let's go to why do dogs yawn so much? Here we go. <laughs> Marsh's animal stories. <laughs> Why do dogs yawn so much? Yeah, now, that right. is a good question. They're always going, I remember yeah. our buster was always so, oh. it, Is it a reaction to something? It's not a, it's well, not there a, are several a boredom reaction or anything, is it? Some of it, it's that they're just like us. They yawn because they're tired, and that can be one of the things. But they also yawn during times of anxiety, insecurity, excitement, indifference, and they use it as a calming signal to other dogs. Really? Yeah. Now, it's, that makes sense. Yeah. Dr. Katie Nelson, senior veterinarian at Chewy. I think that's a company that does uh, dog food. She said of all the reasons that dogs yawn, the calming signal could possibly be the most significant of these as a way to peacefully greet another dog. It's almost like a handshake. Oh. So that's a... Whereas if, if you met somebody and they said, hi, I'm so-and-so, and you yawn, you'd be like, <laughs> yeah. that's an insult yes. there. Uh, yawning, avoiding eye contact, licking their lips, sniffing something in the environment, and exaggerated slow walking are all signs that dogs communicate that they are not a threat. Interesting. I remember people like that in business dealing with me. That <laughs> was real. Joe Schleck down no, the hall? No, I get it. He'd approach you. <gasps> he was down oh. in the uh, accounting department. He didn't like me. Okay, go ahead. Okay, uh, we've recently heard that Aunt Jemima pancake brand and Uncle Ben's rice are going away as outdated advertising personas, and they do depict African Americans in an old-fashioned light. You and I worked in advertising, and in advertising, we're always creating characters to mm-hmm. sell products. But here are some things I didn't know about Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben. (laughs) Well, weren't they depicted as plantation people? Well, not exactly. It was post-slavery. So as a white person, I grew up thinking, Aunt Jemima, she looks like a friendly, happy black woman. What's racist about that? Well, according to the Wall Street Journal, the Aunt Jemima character, which dates back to 1889, Uh was inspired by the song Old Aunt Jemima, which was performed in minstrel shows. Ah. Now, what were minstrel shows? song and dance shows with white actors and black Black face face, yeah yeah. and african-americans were not performers yeah they couldn't even attend the shows (laughs) so that makes sense that's where aunt jemima came from from minstrel shows how about ben uncle ben now he looks like a kind older white-haired black man well uncle ben's rice brand was originally called uncle ben's plantation rice uh-huh. Yeah, they showed him, you know, the, the white-haired man with black bow tie serving rice. And the yeah. Mars Company revamped that brand in 2007. They elevated Uncle Ben to chairman of an imaginary rice company. <laughs> an online ad campaign had him in an opulent office, but critics still noted he still has that black bow tie. That's part of a servant's dress. Is it? Yeah. Oh. Now, here's the problem for both of these advertising characters. The honorific titles Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben. Now, Being white, I never realized this. 
Those titles reflect a period when white Southerners used aunt and uncle because they didn't want to address black adults as Mr. and Mrs. So it was a way to dismiss their identity. Who knew? I didn't. That's sad. Those facts paint Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben in a different light. Yeah, so yeah. a fellow who is an expert on this said uh, the fact that a company is willing at this time to not just revisit but remove those characters means they've had some really intense conversations. They've come to a conclusion that these are vestiges of the Jim Crow era and you're using vestiges to sell your product. Huh. I had no idea. It's background stuff that you didn't grow up understanding. If you grew up white, if you were African-American, you would. You would know that. Okay, Bob, here's one not up your alley. Okay. <laughs> but you may know the answer. All right. Who is the only pro athlete to have been named an all-star in both football and basketball? Somebody from the 50s? No. Nope. 60s? No. Nope. 80s? <laughs> no. Nope. Oh, way before that. No. 90s. Oh, well, no. he retired in 90s. I don't know who. Okay. It was Bo Jackson. Oh, no kidding. He was a star running back who retired in 1991 from the L.A. Raiders with a severe hip injury. And then he went on after that in the 90s Uh to be a star performer with the Kansas City Royals. So he was uh, twice. Super athlete. And, you know, most athletes, when they come out of high school, they've played all the sports. You know, they have to specialize in one or two for their career. Blew my mind that he was an all-star for both those things. I think it's time for us to take a break. All right. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to Trivial Matter on the Off-Ramp with Bob. And Marsha. Smith. We're back again with more Trivial Matters here on the Off-Ramp. Okay, what explorer planted, among other flags, the banner of his college fraternity on the land he discovered? (laughs) Can you believe that? No. (laughs) It it was Robert Peary who, uh, he planted the flag of Delta Kappa Epsilon when he arrived at the North Pole. Oh, oh, yes, he also planted the American flag. Oh, the Kappa must have been thrilled. Jeez. He he planted the Red Cross flag, the flag of the Daughters of the American Revolution. He also planted or buried a bottle containing a message claiming the North Pole for the United States. Now, that bottle has never been found, so we don't own (laughs) the North Pole. Okay. Oh, wow. And, of course, some people say Frederick Cook beat Perry to the pole, but who knows? Yes. Let's not debate that right now. Okay. Not today. Okay. This is fun. What is the shortest sentence in the English language? What can be possibly the shortest sentence? Well, I always think the of, least amount of characters and words. I always think of run, because that is a, both a verb and a sentence. Run, run. Period. Run. No, shorter. shorter. Shorter, shorter than run. It's only three letters. This is two. Two. What is it? Go. Of course. And, uh, there was got an implied subject as you run, or it's like a command, right? It's a, yeah, it's the understood subject, uh, and it's a command. So it, it, if used as a command, go is the shortest sentence, sentence in, in the, the English, English language. language. Okay. All right, now you can die happy. All right, speaking of— <laughs> You can go. Speaking of the opposite of short and small, when was the first computer hard drive invented, and how big was it? The first computer hard drive— when was that? I'll say it was the... Uh, we were very little at the time. 60s? No. 50s. Yeah. 50s. Uh, I remember what a computer looked like in the 60s. Took up a Whole couple rooms. of rooms. Yeah. yeah. With spinning, uh, spinning yeah, tapes. Yeah, so the hard drive in the 50s must have been um, 
humongous. It was. The first hard drive was introduced by IBM in 1956. Okay. It was called the IBM 4350 storage drive, and it worked with their uh, 305 random access memory accounting system, Uh which was a a vacuum tube computer system. Now, how big was this hard drive? First, let's talk about... (laughs) Physical size, not just how much you could store on it. I bet it stored, what, 10 megabytes, something like that? Not even that. It stored 3.5 megabytes. That's the size of a photo these days. Or or an MP3 of a small song. Oh, my God. That's all the more. Now, how big was it? Six feet long, six feet, eight inches tall, and two feet, five inches deep, and it could store a JPEG. Oh, my God. (laughs) But that's all you needed back then. Wow. Can't carry that in my purse. No, no. It's not like a, a portable hard drive wow, or a geez. flash memory. No, no, no. Amazing, isn't it? Yes. Something that big, yeah. six feet tall, and it could only store a 3.5 megabyte file. Okay, tell me what the definition of this word is, okay? Okay. What is a puggle? P-U-G-G-L-E, a puggle. It's a combination of a puddle and a giggle. It's a giggle. <laughs> <laughs> or it's a dog that's a pug that's in yes. a puddle. No, okay. you're half right right there. Okay. Think it through. It's a poodle and a pug dog. It's a beagle and a pug. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. A puggle. Isn't that cute? <laughs> yeah, we that's had what a, it sounds like. We had a, a... Wonderful beagle. A beagle. And if he had made it with the uh, two doors away dog, the pugs, then they would have had a, a puggle. A puggle. <laughs> Oh, okay. As you were saying mated, I'm thinking if he would have lived, but no. (laughs) Our little Buster, what a cute doggy he was. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Every state in the United States has uh, state mottos. Yes. Okay. Some are simple, one-word mottos. Some come from famous quotes. Most relate to American history, but which state motto goes all the way back to ancient Greece and Archimedes? And here's a hint. The phrase relates to this state's most famous Mineral. Oh, jeez. Hematite something? Is it coal? No, this is a mineral, huh? Yeah, well, coal's uh, a mineral. Yeah, I'm just thinking. Um, but this goes all the way back to Archimedes. All right, kids, just tell me. I'm okay, it's thinking. California. Oh. What's their motto? Gold. In gold we trust. No, no their, <laughs> their motto is Eureka. That's Greek for I found it. Oh, and for the gold rush. And yeah, but that's the story of Archimedes. He realized he could determine the purity of gold, so he ran through the streets naked shouting, Eureka! <laughs> and that phrase was later used in the original design of the state seal in 1849. I wonder how many Californians know that, what, why it's Eureka. Well, yeah, who knew Eureka specifically related to gold? And that, why was he naked? Well, that's... That's an ancient story, honey. I see. I have to go back and find out about that. All right. That. Okay, I got a couple more here. What state's motto is equal rights? Which U.S. state's motto is equal rights? I'll say. <laughs> equal have... rights is yeah, the all right. motto. Tell me. It's I'll a, say it's Idaho. A, it's a, well, you're close. It's Wyoming. Okay. And it embraced, uh, Wyoming embraced equal rights as part of its pioneering spirit. The, the, it reflects the fact that way back in 1869, Wyoming guaranteed women the right to vote, the right to serve on juries, and hold public office. Wow. So for 150 Jeez. years. I should have lived in Wyoming well, back yeah. in the day. So women were much more equal in Wyoming, probably because on the frontier, things worked best with all hands on deck. You bet. Jeez. Good to know. Yeah. All right. Okay. This is, I found fascinating, which is good. <laughs> How long, in terms of measurement, 
is a jiffy. <laughs> not, not your jiffy peanut is butter. A, jiffy is, is actually a measurement? Is a real yeah. legal measurement? Yeah. A no. jiffy? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Is it is it related to a New York minute? Is it as fast as a New York minute? I want to know. Faster. Oh, really? I don't know. Jiffy is actually a scientific term. A jiffy is the time it takes light to travel a centimeter in a vacuum or around 33.4 picoseconds. What is a picosecond, yes? Wait a minute, I didn't ask. <laughs> Marcia, what is a picosecond? A picosecond is a trillionth of a second. I thought it was like a burrito flavor or something. <laughs> Do you like a picosecond? Repeat You've had one. after me, a trillionth of a second. <laughs> a trillionth of a second. Yeah. So, that is a jiffy, all right. So <laughs> that's very jiffy. <laughs> Boy. Holy yeah, be, cow. So the next time you say to me, I'll be there in a jiffy. You better be here. <laughs> you, you better <laughs> already be here, buddy. <laughs> what else you got? Here's one after your heart, and you probably know the answer to. What do a beer salesman and world records have in common? Oh, I know the answer to this. And this is the Guinness Book of World Records. Correct. Sir Hugh Beaver. <laughs> Sir Hugh Beaver is his last name? <laughs> Really? Yeah, it was in the early 50s. What what happened? Tell well, us. I believe the story is uh, he was in a bar. He was having an argument over something with someone. And he came up with the idea, wouldn't it be great if there was a book that could solve a lot of these arguments in bars over arcane questions people came up with? Yes. He was in a lot of bars because he was selling Guinness. And uh, he noticed that nobody could ever settle a bar disagreement. So he didn't come up with the book idea right away, but he thought, what if we did a little newsletter as a promotional advertisement and just call it Guinness World Records? And then it finally occurred to them, hey, we got enough here. Let's put it together for a book. Then they just started doing books every year. Yeah. And it was all because this beer salesman wanted to have a way in bars to settle arguments. I and thought it was, was an advertising vehicle for them. Yeah, the Gu- it was. And then it became the Guinness Book of World Records. I think it eventually became its own company now, I believe. they And they still oh, do it? that. Yeah, they still do that. Well, and just uh, a little aside, speaking of the top weirdest Guinness World Records, there's a guy named Nick the Lick Strobel <laughs> from Monterey, California. Where do you get these things? He's the proud owner of the world's longest tongue. Oh, jeez. How long is it, Bob? I don't know if I even <laughs> want to think about that. Well, okay. It's almost four inches. Oh, dear. The average tongue, you ask, is... I didn't ask, Well, but... it's 3.3 inches. I'll, we'll measure yours a little later. <laughs> but his is four, and Nick the Lick uh, holds that Guinness Book of World Records. Oh, dear Lord. Just thought you'd find that intriguing. Okay, so <laughs> let me go back to one of my favorite topics, history. Okay. <laughs> How did English explorer Captain Cook trick his men into eating sauerkraut to prevent scurvy on their ocean voyage. Well, it's... uh, How did Captain Cook... I wonder if it was as creative as the quinine. It it is actually as creative. This is back in 1772. Yeah, what did he do? Put it on a good corned beef sandwich? You have to remember, Captain Cook went all over the world, even to the North Pole, almost to the North Pole, and and Hawaii, and everywhere. He was an amazing guy. Did he put it on a a food, like a pork or a... Good uh, corned beef sandwich? No, he deceived his sailors. Uh, He put sauerkraut in containers saying, for officers only. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's hilarious. Isn't that funny? Oh, my God. He was preparing his ship, the Resolution, for a voyage to the South Pacific in 1772, and he wanted to feed his men sauerkraut to prevent them from coming up with scurvy. He knew the Germans seldom had that disease because they always carried barrels of sauerkraut on their long voyages. So Cook knew the English sailors would never eat foreign food, no matter how good it was for them. So he put barrels of sauerkraut out on deck labeled, For Officers Only. And little by little, Brilliant. The, the contents of the barrels grew less and less. And during that voyage in 1772, not one sailor on the oh. resolution came down with the disease. Oh, they probably enjoyed every minute of eating it because they thought it was a delicacy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like, this must be... Uh, yeah, special. Oh, caviar. Caviar, yeah. <laughs> they probably thought it was something like yeah, that, you know? Yeah, I don't know what this is, but he likes it, so... <laughs> <laughs> well, here's a question. How heavy is a blue whale heart? How heavy is the heart of a blue whale? Yeah. And blue whales weigh tons and tons and tons. So how heavy is a heart? It's as heavy as the first IBM hard drive. <laughs> <laughs> it's six feet tall, <laughs> six point eight feet deep. I don't I don't know how much. Well, it's actually the size of a small piano. <laughs> really? Four hundred pounds. Oh my god. You can hear his heartbeat from more than two miles away. A blue whale's heart is the size of a small piano, 400 pounds, <laughs> and you can hear it two miles away. Wow, put that in your factoid list. That's amazing. It is. Okay, a show or two ago, we were talking about uh, the first motto in the U.S. coins, and it was, um, mind your business. Remember that? Yeah. Then you asked me, so when did In God We Trust go on the coins? Uh-huh. Well, I have the answer. Oh, well. <laughs> because Rob Fredrickson, one of our listeners, came back to me with an email and told me about this. So can you give me a guess when you think In God We Trust was adopted by Congress? Thanks for this, Rob. Um, I'll say, God, we trust, 1892. Now, you would think it was something like that. They would go way back. It's probably 1953. It was 1956. Really? Yeah. So that's when they adopted In God We Trust, the Congress did, as the official motto of the United States. All right, now, okay. Rob's question. <laughs> what Rob. earlier national motto did it replace? Oh, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> Little Dick Van Dyke humor there. Um, God save the president. I don't no, know. <laughs> no. It replaced E Pluribus Unum. Oh, sure. I remember seeing that. Yeah. I, you could still see it on the old coins. Yeah, for, of which, which means... From many, one. From many, we are one. That goes all the way back to 1776. So we had, mind your own business. <laughs> <laughs> then we had, e pluribus unum. And then we have, in God we trust. Yeah, I a, like the last one best. Yeah, me too. That yeah. second one is a little Star Trekian, isn't it? <laughs> so, yeah. So our thanks to Rob Fredrickson, one of our listeners. Thanks, Rob. <laughs> Send me some, huh? <laughs> okay. Okay. According to Costco... A Costco survey on their Facebook page, Bob. Can you name the top four favorite ice cream flavors that their customers voted? Can I you... think it's the old standbys. I think it's chocolate, Number one. vanilla, and strawberry. Well, you're right with the first two. Okay. 22% said chocolate, 14% said vanilla. But you'll be surprised at the third, which is one of our favorites. What did we have in the oh, fridge? Oh, Jamocha or coffee. Coffee, coffee. flavor. Oh, Is no number kidding. three, 6%. And then the next one, 5%, Rocky Road. So the top four, chocolate, vanilla, coffee, and Rocky Road. 
That's pretty good. At least among Costco customers. Yeah. <laughs> so that means all those are bought in huge quantities. That's <laughs> they what know that what means. to stock. Yeah. <laughs> Take this survey, then we'll know what to stock. Oh God. Okay, let's end up with famous last words. Okay. This is Buffalo Bill Cody. Oh. He asked his doctor how much time he had left. The doctor gave him a sober estimate. This is in 1917. He said, your life is like an hourglass. The sand is slipping away gradually. (laughs) Slowly but surely, the sand will be gone. He died during that speech. (laughs) The end is not far away. And Buffalo Bill said, okay, then let's forget about it and play high five. (laughs) Did he really? That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't like all the poetry. Look, I'm dying. Let's do something fun Let's for a change. Let's play high five. <laughs> well, we hope you enjoyed playing high five with us with oh. this trivia episode. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. Join us again next time on The Off-Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.